Hi, I'm Dan Noel. And I'm Alan Holder. Welcome to the first installment of the BTLJ podcast, Big Conversations. On October 1st, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit handed down its opinion in Mozilla v. FCC, the legal challenge to the Federal Communications Commission's 2018 reclassification of Internet service providers as information services. The case is about the issue of net neutrality, essentially how Internet traffic is regulated. Though the court upheld the FCC's ability to regulate Internet traffic on a federal level, it also found that states could institute their own stricter policies. For this, the first installment of Issue 35's Big Conversations series, we sat down with two of Berkeley Law's experts in telecommunications law, Professors Eric Stallman and Tejas Narachanya, to get their reactions to the D.C. Circuit's ruling and predictions for the future of net neutrality and internet regulation. Professor Tejas Narachanya is the Robert and Nancy Corson Assistant Professor of Law at Berkeley Law School, where he teaches courses in telecommunications law and policy, among other technology law topics. He co-directs the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology alongside Professor Stallman. Prior to Berkeley, Professor Narachanya clerked for Justice Stephen G. Breyer of the United States Supreme Court and Judge Diane Wood of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. From 2012 to 2013, Professor Narachanya worked as special counsel at the FCC on matters of net neutrality. Professor Eric Stallman is an assistant clinical professor of law at Berkeley Law School, where he is the co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology and the associate director of the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic. Prior to Berkeley Law, Professor Stallman served as policy counsel for Google, general counsel for the Center for Democracy and Technology, and counsel and policy advisor to Congresswomen Nancy Pelosi and Zoe Lofgren of the United States House of Representatives. From 2005 to 2006, Professor Stallman served as an honors attorney at the FCC's Media Bureau. Here is our big conversation with Professor Stallman and Narachanya. Professors, thank you so much for being here with us. We're really excited to talk to you about this decision. And uh, Professor Stallman, if I could start with you, can you help us understand the term net neutrality and what it represents? Sure. Yeah, I can try it. Um, so network neutrality, there are a lot of different definitions of it but I think a lot of them revolve around common themes. Network neutrality is a network design principle, and it's also a non-discrimination principle. So the way that I like to think about it is the ability to send and receive traffic from any publicly addressable endpoint of the Internet to or from any other publicly addressable endpoint of the Internet without interference or discrimination by the network operator, except for that which is reasonably necessary for legitimate network management purposes. So what that basically means is you take all traffic, regardless of the content or the device that it's coming from, and you treat it the same, except for when you have to do, treat it differently for network management purposes. So for example, when the network is congested and some traffic is latency sensitive, say because it's, it's, it's real-time voice traffic, you can treat that differently. But other than that, you treat traffic the same. And in that sense, network neutrality is also a principle of common carriage, which basically means much like the same way that the taxi services or the shipping services take all packages the same, you do the same thing with internet traffic. Professor Narachanya, can you give us some history and context on this case? Uh, specifically, what were the arguments on issue and how did we get to um, the D.C. Circuit? How much time do you have? Yeah, just a small <laughs> um, question, just a tiny one. So, I mean, the, the history of the case um, is is inextricably intertwined with the history of net neutrality. So I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson and take us back uh, to the computer inquiries. So I think the most important telecommunications statute today is the Telecommunications Act of 1996. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 
gives us two major statutory classifications or definitions that are important for, to understanding the case. The first is a telecommunications service. That's a common carriage service of the sort that Professor Stallman talked about, and then an information service. Those terms are their modern evolutions of what were once called basic services and enhanced services before the 1996 Act. So in a series of orders and regulations issued by the FCC, you know, the FCC was trying to figure out what to do about modem-based services um, that would transmit data over telephone lines and data processors, companies like you know, Ross Perot's old company that would process data on behalf of other companies. So these other companies would enlist AT&T to transmit their data to Ross Perot, and Ross Perot would analyze it and then send it back to them. Um, and how does the FCC deal with that? And what they said is, well, okay, some of these are basic services. They're like telephone lines, and that we're going to regulate just like we regulate the telephone lines. But those enhanced services, that data processing capability, that computing power, that's an enhanced service. We're going to treat that separately. So we have this old designation. It gets imported into the 1996 Act. And then after 1996, you know, we have DSL, cable service starts to come about. And the question is, how do we treat those? How do we treat broadband internet access? Is it a basic service, a telecommunication service, or is it an enhanced service, an information service? And so the history of this case of net neutrality is, what does the classification have to be if what you want to do is impose net neutrality type obligations on internet service providers? If you want to make them subject to common carriage rules, do you, does the FCC have to decide to call them telecommunication services or information services. So under the 1996 Act, importing those old definitions, they're basically telecommunication services. In 2005, the FCC decides to reclassify them and call them information services. That decision is upheld by the Supreme Court in a case called Brand X. Brand X is famous for both telecommunications law and administrative law purposes. Then it turns out that that decision makes it difficult for the FCC to enforce net neutrality obligations on providers. So the FCC reverses course and decides to call broadband internet access a telecommunication service. And now, finally, in this case, what happens? The FCC changes its mind one more time and says, well, we think it's better, this FCC thinks it's better, to treat broadband internet access providers, ISPs, to classify them as information services. And so this case is about whether or not that's permissible, whether that's good policy, whether the FCC followed all of the APA requirements that it has to follow. So let's go on to the D.C. Circuit decision itself. And we thought we'd start with a discussion of the ruling, just going through some of the holdings. The court ruled that the FCC was within its statutory authority to reclassify ISPs as Title I information services. It sounds to our reading like the court ruled on whether the FCC could do this rather than whether the reclassification was, was appropriate. But curious for your reactions and, and why you think the court took that approach. So I, I think your reading is exactly correct. It very much was, was situating this case as where it, whether or not the reclassification fit within the, the FCC's discretion, not, not whether or not the court itself would have defined a broadband internet access service as a telecommunication service or an information service. And they really, I, th I think, did two things. One, 
was looking back to to, to Brand X, the case that Professor Narachani just mentioned, and said, look, there the Supreme Court said previously that the FCC was within its discretion to, to declare the service a, an information service, so therefore they can do it again. And then they also really sort of adopted a lot of the the FCC's reasoning um, with respect to, to DNS and caching, um, which are two sort of information services that are, are functionally integrated with with um, with Internet Access Service, and said it was reasonable for the commission to say that because there were these elements of information processing that they included as part of the provision of, of sort of the Internet Transport Service, that they were within their discretion to declare the whole thing an information service. That's exactly right. I mean, I think a lot of this is about... Um, Brand X sketching the boundaries of what is permissible and whether or not the FCC stayed within those bounds. I think the D.C. Circuit says, look, the Supreme Court said this was fine once, it's fine again. The other thing I would say is that sort of lurking in the background of this of this decision and of, you know, of Brand X and a lot of decisions of this sort is a sort of institutional competence concern. Given the discretion to choose between information service and telecommunication service, we should ask who should exercise that discretion. And do we want the court to do that? Or do we want an agency? Do we want an agency that might be relatively more politically responsive, an agency that might have relatively more expertise, an agency that has greater fact-finding and fact-gathering authority? So I think, you know, notwithstanding whatever you might think about this particular decision, there's a sort of general principle that's at stake here, which is who should decide this question? So for net neutrality advocates who are um, led by Mozilla in, in this particular mm-hmm. case, what is the, the reasoning behind um, going after the institutional competence argument as opposed to trying to get the court to rule on whether these services are information services or telecommunication services? Why attack the institution as opposed to have the court rule on the issue itself, as it were? The, the briefing itself, I think they did both. Okay. I think I mean I think they really did try to go at the merits of the question of okay. whether or not it was um uh, if it was DNS or um and, and caching were were um either functionally integrated or whether they fell within the the, the um, um uh, the telecommunications management exception. Right. Um. But I think what they were what they were really trying to do is say um that because the FCC was was changing its mind again. That it had sort of to, there was more of a showing that would have to make to justify that decision, and that's sort of where they wanted to sort of put some limits on on the uh, on, on deference to the agency. But I think they they weren't they weren't just attacking the the, um, the institutional competence um, or the discretion of the agency. I think they were doing a little bit of both. The court said that the FCC needed to more adequately explain how a Title One classification might affect internet access for public safety workers, poll attachments, and broadband deployment and the eligibility of lower-income consumers to receive lifeline benefits. So since the reclassification has already happened, and the court held that the FCC was within its authority to reclassify, why did it also set these sort of ex post facto conditions, and what would happen if the FCC now, after this ruling, fails to, to address these concerns? It seems in tension with that institutional competency and deference conversation. Can you say a little bit more about why you think that is? Why it's in tension with the institutional competence and deference question? Because if we're if the court's saying that we're we're deferring to the agency to make this decision, then why is the court at the same time doing that on one hand, but then on the other hand saying that well, but you do need to explain these certain areas in more depth? Yeah, 
So, okay. So I think, I think there's sort of two parts to that question, right? One, which is why send this back to the agency at all? And second, what happens when it gets sent back? And so I think why send it back at all is a bit about how you, how that institutional competence is negotiated. I think that deference is significant, but it's not absolute. And so the idea here is that the court is willing to defer to the FCC to a point. And that point, you know, in in a few of these issues, the the commission was sort of past that point. So in respect to poll attachments, in respect to public safety, in respect to um, lifeline and low-income consumers, what the court said was like, look, you've provided no or next to no analysis of these issues or of the impact of your decision on poll attachment regulations, on low-income customers, on uh, public safety concerns, and you're statutorily required to consider these things. And and so because you haven't done that, you haven't done this bare minimum, uh, you have to go back and do it again. So now your question is, okay, so now it goes back to the FCC. What's the FCC going to do? Um, great question. I don't know. Uh, I I suspect that the FCC will do something, but I suspect that what the FCC will do is so this it's in a it's in an FCC docket. That docket is still open. The FCC will probably issue a new NPRM or a further notice of proposed rulemaking or a further notice of some sort that sort of explains its reasoning. Right without, I suspect my guess is that without any significant changes to the rules or the outcome, but just further elaborates on the FCC's reasoning that you know, it tried to advance in, in the briefing or maybe wasn't sufficiently clear in the order, um, maybe something new. And so the FCC will set that out. We'll get a new round of comments. We will get a new final order from the FCC, and that might be challenged again. Yeah, one, one thing I want to add to that is just that the discussion of what happened with Verizon throttling first responders during the, mm-hmm. the, the fires was really interesting because as Professor Narachani has said, essentially the the commission really didn't consider these <laughs> these issues sufficiently during the uh, when when they were developing the order, and then it, it really seemed that that during the litigation they just sort of yada 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 over them. And the the court made a point of pointing out that the incident where Verizon was throttling the first responders happened after the docket had closed in this proceeding. So they said, unfortunately, this wasn't properly before them. Um, at the same time, what also wasn't wasn't before them was was the FCC's quite remarkable response to why its rules uh, were, were were now sufficient to deal with that problem. Because what they said essentially was the combination of market forces, public opprobrium, um, and um, the transparency rule were sufficient to deal with things like public safety concern. And 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 as exa- as evidence of that, they showed the the amount of backlash that Verizon got. Um, after they had throttled first responders, which was you know richly deserved, but the the thing that the court points out is that some some issues are too important to be left to public opprobrium to solve things like public safety. So I think they're also they're they're signaling a little bit that look you were within your discretion to say that for purposes of maintaining a, a, a network that is free from you know the blocking or or or, 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 or significant degradation of of, of traffic. Um, that market forces, transparency, and public opprobrium were enough. But we have our questions about that. We also have our questions to, that, that they go far enough to address some of these other concerns, and we might be seeing you again. So I think there's some clear foreshadowing going on. Yeah, that, that leads into a question I wanted to ask, which is a hypothetical. Suppose the FCC proposes and enacts new rules to address these concerns, but net neutrality advocates sort of seize upon any perceived um, 
insufficient nature of these rules or, or something else happens akin to the Verizon throttling during the fires that makes them say, um, this hasn't been enough. And so we would like to question the competence of the FCC once again. Could that become sort of the Achilles heel for the the 2018 order and see the FCC back in court? So I think that the FCC will be very careful in any in any further notice proposals rulemaking to limit it very very carefully to just the issues that it has to address um, after right. this decision. I think that net neutrality advocates will definitely disregard that, <laughs> and they will <laughs> and they will try to litigate once again the, the merits of the underlying decision. And the the thing that I think is that is, is going to be very interesting is what what new information will be available at the time. You have to remember that the entire time that we've been fighting over the net neutrality rules, the, 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 the network operators themselves have been on best behavior, both because you do not want to create the case that's going to justify these rules that you're doing everything to avoid. And also, as was mentioned in, in this decision, at the time that this litigation was going on, there were four separate um, mergers or acquisitions of these companies um, that the, the, the were before the agency. And so you're, you're always on your best behavior when you're trying to get approval for a merger or an acquisition. So at what point do the ISPs feel like there, there is sufficient repose that they can start doing what they want to do? And have we reached that point? And you might otherwise think you have, except for now this docket sort of remains open, even mm-hmm. in this limited respect. So I think that, I mean, your question is very good, both respect to, you know, will, will the advocates sort of show up and try to relitigate, you know, the case in full? But also it'll be interesting to see if by the time that we're considering just these limited issues, if new a new record is developing that is going to put some pressure on the FCC to address it, and we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, this is this is a little bit uh, away from the question you just asked, but I think it's a it's a really interesting question to consider what what the ISP strategy is in view of this litigation and now this docket that remains open, but also the other cases that are now going to pop up on preemption because. You know, the ISPs on the one hand might want to stay sort of on their best behavior and say, look, all these state laws are needless. We're not doing anything. There's no reason. Um, there's no reason for these preemption cases, which I, I assume we'll get to, yes. for these preemption cases to come up. But on the other hand, what you might want if you're an, an ISP is to say, look, these state laws are preventing us from doing the very thing that the FCC wants us to do. This is the this is the business model. This is the new proposal that we have in the ready um, that the FCC would let us do, but for the California rule. And so, I, I'm really interested to see what ISPs do next. I suspect they'll stay quiet, but I wonder what it means for the preemption cases. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It kind of segues us to our next portion, which is we would love to hear your reaction to some of the sound bites and things that have been said by people who are part of this litigation, others in the legal world who are involved. We've talked a little bit about how the FCC might respond, how the ISPs might respond. We're curious, what do you think Mozilla, other parties who are advocating for net neutralities, what are they saying at the office in the morning after this decision comes out? Amy Keating, chief legal officer at Mozilla, who's a Berkeley alum, described the decision um, as something encouraging. She was quote, encouraged to see the courts free states to enact net, net neutrality rules, end quote. Do you think that that's a universal sentiment among people who are net neutrality advocates? 
So let me first say that I'm Amy Keating. Uh, she was uh, she came in and dressed the the Samuelson Clinic here at Berkeley a while ago. Is incredibly sharp, and I'm really really happy to see her engage in this issue. I think that was about the best you could make of what was otherwise a, a sort of a, a disappointing decision. I mean, obviously you would you would want the previous rules to remain in place. Um, and that was the that was the goal of the litigation, and that didn't happen. But but I think you're right that the, the, the now the strategy does sort of turn to the states. Uh, at the same time, you know, Mozilla is very interesting because they're both a, a nonprofit organization that's committed to an open and decentralized web, and then they're also a company. They make a browser that sort of <laughs> that sort of depends on an open web for people to, to access. So I think you're 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 thinking about a few things. Um, one is there a federal avenue available? Are you biding your time until potential change in the leadership of the, of the, the commission? But what you most want to do, I think, is really keep the pressure on. Is you do, you don't want this stuff to, to fade away. You don't you don't want to sort of say that this is the world that we now live in. And you just sort of have to remind yourself that every time that the pendulum has swung away from net neutrality in the past, after Comcast versus uh, FCC, after Verizon, it has come back and swung harder. You know, we started with nothing but an enforcement order. Then we got a rule, and then the rule was struck down, and then we got reclassification. So you're sort of trying to. I mean, again, this is this is this is the optimistic way of looking at it. You're, you're trying to think about where the next swing of the pendulum is and how you can help it along. Try to anticipate that, maybe yeah. wait until the, yeah. it's ripe. Yeah. Speaking of keeping the pressure on, um, in a statement, California Attorney General Javier Becerra said that the court's decision underscores the FCC's failure to adequately consider public safety concerns or impacts on low-income Americans. Do you think that that is a fair characterization of what's just happened? And is that California's attempt to keep the pressure on sort of attention on sort of the, the weaknesses that the court signaled of the SEC's approach? I mean, so I think it's certainly a fair characterization of the of the of what has happened. It may not be a complete characterization of what happened, but it's certainly fair in that the FCC, what the court says, that the FCC did not consider public safety adequately. The FCC did not consider the impact on lifeline and low income consumers adequately. Those things are true. So I think that is a way for you know the state to highlight the commission's inadequacies and then for the state to sort of say look and here's where we're going to step in and and step up and this is why you know we in California have enacted this net neutrality rule um because we think that you know such a rule might have better effects for public safety concerns such a rule might have better effects for um consumers and so yeah i think that's a way i think that's a way of california to sort of say fcc here's what you've done here's what you've done that's bad or inadequate. Um, and here's what we're doing in California to make it right. You mentioned before we started recording that some of the concurrences in the ruling seem to be begging the Supreme Court to take up um, this case. And I think I also heard one of you mention that it's it would be best to just leave it as is. Why? So I think we should clarify when we said uh, what we said about the, about the concurrences yeah. were was that they they felt that they were bound by by Brand X to reach the result that they did, but the Supreme Court is not. And and, and the, the the concurrences are very explicit. The first one on the mill is very explicit about this, saying, "Look, we're reaching this decision because under Brand X, we can't we can't say that the FCC wasn't within its discretion to reach a decision that the Supreme Court has already said that they were in, within its discretion to reach. There's just no way for us to do that." But things are a lot different now than they were. And as I talk about, I mean, people, 
I don't I don't use my ISP's DNS. I think that's sort of crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, so it is is not the world that it was during Brand X. But we are bound by this decision. The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not so bound, but then they can revisit this, and they should. And and so I think the the, the particularly Millet's um, concurrence is very much an open invitation to to the court to to revisit that. Whether or not the court will, I mean, it's. I went back and I was reading the um, the wonderful analogy that. That Justice Scalia gave of of a pizza shop. <laughs> to say, it's ridiculous to say that the the pizza was not sort of integrated within the delivery service when you order a pizza. Or sorry, the delivery service wasn't integrated. So that invitation stands, but also that that court's different now. Uh, Justice Scalia has has passed on, and 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 Justice Kavanaugh is not something you, someone you would expect to to rule favorably on this. So yeah, so I think that they would welcome the Supreme Court taking the case up. I don't think they're trying to, I don't think there's any sort of anything tactical um, about their resolution of this case, though, um, regarding that, that, that potential. Sounds like just a acknowledgement of how rapidly technology is changing. And it's an example of cases that were decided even two years ago, let alone 10 or 15, are are not going to apply to our yeah. technology today. Yeah. yeah I, yes, I think that's exactly right. There's also, there's a sort of interesting there's an interesting law nerd question <laughs> baked in there, right? The Which is, we like those for this podcast. Well, so it's what the concurrence says is that we're bound by this. We're bound by the Supreme Court's decision in Brand X, and you know, Brand X itself is based on an understanding of what internet access service offerings were in 2005. That's the court's deference to the agency's characterization of facts on the ground at the time, and what the what the D.C. Circuit is saying is that we are bound by the Supreme Court's deference to the agency's prior characterization of facts, not even law. So what's really interesting here is to what extent are lower courts, should lower courts continue to be bound by factual determinations of the court that are 5, 10, 15, 50 years old? I don't know. I mean, everything else in our in our jurisprudence sort of suggests that the higher up you get in the hierarchy of the courts, the less we care about facts and the more we care about law, right? All the standards of review are deferential on fact, but de novo on law. Brand X is a doctrine that says um, agencies can change their mind on the law because facts change. But the D.C. Circuit feels itself bound by the Supreme Court's understanding of the facts, which, by the way, I think are wrong. I think... I think the way the Supreme Court reads Brand X, or the way the Supreme Court in Brand X reads the FCC's order on DNS is not quite right. I think it was well litigated, but it's not the best reading of the order. It's not the best reading of what DNS and caching are. My my best reading of the order is that these services were always telecommunication services, not information services. Professor Solomon, you're nodding. It seems like you would agree with that assessment. I would, yeah. <laughs> that assessment. But I also think it's it's a it's a brilliant point to that <laughs> we have to at some point figure out what what is what is the half life of a, of deference to a factual determination on something where the technology moves so quickly. Um, just because I I think it's relatively short. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we want to talk about kind of the future of net neutrality, and you brought up earlier the 
ruling on preemption and on on states, and that's the spin that Mozilla had on it, and also many others who are advocates of net neutrality. So, what do you expect we're going to hear next in the news? Uh, do you think regulation on on a state by state basis is going to be the the next move? I think I don't know, but so what we had, you know, the the 2018 order comes out. Um, the order says uh, reclassification to Title One and preemption. At the same time, California, among other states, they enact laws or executive orders that try to enforce net neutrality in a, in a variety of ways. The the federal government sues to strike down those state laws. Those lawsuits were all put on hold while this lawsuit was pending. So now that this lawsuit is done or almost done, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on what happens at the Supreme Court. But once this lawsuit is done, I think what we're likely to see is the preemption suits will get resolved next. And, you know, I think while those, pre- while those preemption suits are, are still pending, I would be surprised to see many states move in the interim, unless, unless a new state thought that it had a new theory or a different way of sort of working in light of what is decided in the D.C. Circuit's opinion, in light of what the Supreme Court may or may not say, maybe a state will have a different theory or a different way of adopting its own net neutrality rules. Um, But absent that, absent some new way of doing it, I think what will happen is the preemption lawsuits will get resolved, whether just tell us whether or not states really can enact their own net neutrality protections. Um, And then, you know, states may or may not do more depending on the outcome of of those lawsuits. I also think it'll be interesting to see just sort of on the business side what what happens. I mean, if you looked at when the during the consideration of the twenty of the, of the rules in twenty fifteen, there was a, a a model piece of legislation that was floating around in the Senate that was a was a net neutrality uh, bill drafted with a lot of input from the ISPs, and it sort of putting that against what you would sort of think as as the ideal net neutrality rule sort of showed you. What they would like to reserve from themselves, be able to be able to do, and it and it really seemed to be offering some kind of service that would sort of be the like the preferred internet gaming package, something like that, which was a a two sided market. Uh, you know, users would subscribe to it, and but then also um, the different edge providers would have to sort of pay to be involved in it, and that seemed to to, to be one potential type of um, of price discrimination they, they would like to engage in uh, if the rules would allow them to do so. So will we start to see things like that happen? And I think that'll be sort of, in addition to what's happening in, in the courts, I think it's, it's very important just to see what's going to be happening in, in the market because that'll sort of help define what, what, the, what the lines are for, for the next round of the litigation, <laughs> regulatory <laughs> proceeding, whatever this is going to turn into next. So it sounds like the ISPs could just find themselves in a state of constant flux between trying to comply with different with the patchwork of state laws that might come from this, um, while at the same time fighting those um, state laws and potentially also lobbying for potential uh, federal legislation. So, is this what the foreseeable future looks like? I think, in a word, yes. I think, in a word, yeah. I think we're 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 in a place where there's where there are a lot of potential moving parts. I'm not convinced that that's so unusual. It's often the case that industries find themselves in a place where there's potential federal regulation that will affect them. There's potential state 
rules and regulations that will affect them, and that there's lawsuits over those regulations or lawsuits that affect their business. I think that's, you know, that's just part of our democracy. And so, yeah, I think that's that's right, but that's that's just right. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the one thing I, I would say is probably less likely is is legislation right now. You, the fe- you, at yeah, the federal level? Yeah, because that, that's... You, when there usually is a push towards legislation is when it's an alternative to what the agency is doing. And because right now, from the ISP's perspective, they, they like what the agency has done. And because net neutrality advocates have, have tended to be very skeptical of Congress. They view it as, as very closely aligned with, with, with industry. And any time that you try to open up the Communications Act to deal with net neutrality, you're opening up the Communications Act. And it's 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 rare that that sort of users don't wind up a little bit upside down in, um, in, in, in those legislative rewrites. So I, I don't think that uh, that from either the, the ISPs or, or from the, the advocates, you, you, you see right now a, a large appetite for federal legislation. Yeah, I think le- legislation is unlikely, but I don't think that means that lobbying will wind up. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> okay, before we jump to the last question, is there anything that would be worthwhile to talk about that we haven't asked about? This what part. did we miss on our issue spot? Right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess I, on on preemption, I guess one question is, what is what's the path to being not preempted? And I think the opinion does a pretty good job of marking the path to saying that these state laws are not preempted. You know, really what what this comes down to, the preemption question, is whether or not the choice to classify broadband internet access as a Title I information service, whether that is a choice not to regulate or a choice to make regulation impossible. And what what the D.C. Circuit says is that this is a choice that makes regulation impossible. It puts this outside of the scope of the FCC's powers. And so, you know, the states retain the authority to regulate intrastate communications. And it is true that the, you know, the Internet is not a computer attached to a cloud. It's a computer attached to a local network, attached to to an access network, attached to an interconnection point, attached to a transit network. And so, you know, net neutrality has always been about that access network. And that access network surprise is like intrastate, and so this is a this is an intrastate regulation, and the FCC has decided to take everything else outside of its jurisdiction, and so you know putting all that together, I think what we have is a, a path to state regulation of intrastate communications because it's access network focused, and one that doesn't violate the dormant commerce clause or the interstate commerce clause, because yes, it has an effect on interstate commerce because the access networks connect to uh, the access networks connect to the rest of the internet, just like you know your street connects to the interstate highways. But it doesn't discriminate against interstate commerce. It treats all that commerce the same. So that I think is the path. But we'll see. Yeah, I, I think the, the the preemption question is really is really interesting that. The idea of of the internet as this open and decentralized network, you, you think of it as sort of having a sort of an allergy to local regulation. And there's always this, this concern about the balkanization of the internet. Should these 
you know, whether different nations or, or different states start to, to start to impose regulations. At the same time, if you look at the issues in the case where the court said you, you just didn't do a very good job, poll attachments, public safety, low-income communities, these things are, are, the states are rightly concerned about these type of issues. Some pretty local. Yes, they really, really do. And so this point about it being the regulation of like that last mile network, you know, that's, that, that isn't an idea. That actually exists someplace, and it, and it seems appropriate that the states would, would have a have a, a say in, in how that, that network operates. So it's a yeah, it's a fascinating question, but it does sort of put in sort of the, the sort of the theoretical design principle of the internet and the, the practicality of, of the the wires in the ground. It's it's going to force us to contend with that potential dissonance. Just a follow up. In practice, you mentioned that it has to do a lot with intrastate regulation of sort of the behavior or traffic within the state what does that look like for interstate um, relations like for instance if if someone tries to watch something on netflix on a server that's in california and they're in in missouri and they have two different regular regulatory structures for what their net neutrality looks like does that mean that that traffic is likely or it's possible that that traffic will arrive in um, Missouri at a slower um, rate than at a different state that has a different regulatory approach to net neutrality. Well, so it's a it's a good question. So I I think in practice, right, what might happen is if you're Netflix and you have content delivery network servers deployed, some in California and some in Missouri, then California has a different set of rules than Missouri does. Then that will certainly affect you know, your connection, right? Those rules will affect your connection from your local commuter in California to the local CDN connection point in California mm-hmm. as compared to the connection between the computer and the CDN connection point in Missouri. But if your question is about, um, you know, the, the content is stored in Missouri and you're in California, well, it was always the case. It was always the case that net neutrality was only about the connection from your computer to the interconnection point. Net neutrality, never, 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 with some caveats, <laughs> um, regulated stuff beyond that point, because the markets are different, and, and that comes back to Professor Stallman's point. These are these are real places. The internet, it's easy for us to abstract the internet away to this cloud, right? But it's not that. It's a series of real places with physical wires and real offices, and so like understanding those different layers of the internet. Understanding those different places, understanding the different markets matters quite a bit. And so the market for last mile access provision is different than the market for transit provision. And because those markets are different, the reg- it makes sense that the, regula- the regulatory scheme looks different. And so that's why net neutrality was focused on one set of problems, but not a different set of problems. So last question. This is your chance to be fortune teller. Uh, a hat I'm sure you love wearing. If you had to predict the next net neutrality headline, what do you think it would be? Um, John Oliver crashes FCC website once again. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, yeah. I yeah, I, 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 in terms of what happens in in, in the course, I, I can't predict. All, all I can predict is it's going to be something along the lines of. Comcast announces new consumer choice preferred plan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Professors Narachanya and Stalin. We really appreciate your time. Thanks Thank so much you. for being here. Thanks. Thanks. 
Special thanks to Professor Stallman and Archanya for granting two 2Ls an hour of their precious time to educate us on net neutrality. And thank you for listening. Make sure you check out our weekly Five Minutes in Tech Law series and be on the lookout for our next big conversation. Today's episode was brought to you by BTLJ podcast editor Alan Holder and associate podcast editor Dan Noel. We are committed to bringing you interesting news and conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you found our podcast so we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, write us at btljpodcast at gmail.com. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. Don't get legal advice from a podcast. Talk to a lawyer. Where he teaches courses in telecommunication. <laughs> Where he teaches courses in telecommunicate.